What is going on, you guys? Welcome to the Strong Life Podcast with Kendra Jarrett. That's me, your host. Normally, I ask for this at the end, but I was way too excited where I was talking to Dr. Sims to ask. If you don't mind and you have a second, please rate this show five stars when you listen to it. If anything helped you, if any of my content anywhere helps you, that is so helpful to a creator, five stars. It's the gold standard. So thank you in advance for interacting, sharing the show. I see you guys. I see you sharing, tagging me. Please continue to do that. It is so helpful. I can't even tell you. So that's number one. Number two, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Sims this week. We had the best time. We laughed so hard. Um, I really enjoyed her. I think I would describe her as humble, uh, open, available, transparent, accessible, brilliant, uh, you name it, passionate. And I just, I love the way she thinks about her work and talks about her work. And I had the chance to hear her present man, she knows how to deliver her content well, simply in a way that, you know, you can really, really absorb and understand. So if she listens to this, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. I, she has been kind of a virtual mentor. I have followed her work. She's inspired me to even be here getting my graduate degree. Her work has. So that's, that's really, really cool to, to understand about this episode as you listen to it. So I have a few things that I wanted to address as I reviewed the episode and thought about it. Uh, first of all, I, I think I might've blacked out for this episode. <laughs> and every once in a while, you know, I, I catch myself, um, I'm thinking ahead or I'm, I'm thinking of the next question. And it's really interesting to be in this position and interview somebody like that, where I, I would felt very desperate to get out as much as I could, but I want, I think there are a few things that will be helpful to the listener as you go into this episode. Okay. So number one, get her book next level and read it or listen to it. I would read it highlight the heck out of it before you listen to this episode. If you don't, totally, you can listen to this episode, but then go buy her book or audio or both, which I've done, and then re-listen to it. And it's going to put a lot of what we talk about in context. So one thing I try to do as a host is make the episodes make sense from beginning to end. So we're not just jumping all over all around and it's confusing, but I am, was so excited to talk to her and had so many questions that if you don't have a foundation at all, you may feel a little lost. Maybe, I don't know. I, my, the woman who does my editing said it was the best podcast yet, but I also think that's because of who, who the guest was, but I thought that was cool because again, I, I I was like, what just happened when it was over? So I'm learning how to be a better podcaster, I guess, and communicator. Thank you guys who have been with me from my first show to, to now. So the first thing is next level and read it. The second thing is that she refers to something called muscle protein synthesis, which is the, just the process of building new muscle protein or new muscle. She refers to that quite a bit. I don't always talk about it like that um, because I'm not a scientist, but I have, I talk about it sometimes. And I thought, I don't know if all my listeners will know what that is, but it's important because she talks about, 
nutrition protocols, uh, stimulating muscle protein synthesis, training protocols, stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So you just have to understand all she's saying is girls, we want to be in a place where we can build muscle from nutrition to supplementation, all of it. That's important. The next thing is that we touch on HRT. You'll hear her refer to it as MRT, which I think if in her book is uh, menopause replacement therapy. This is very individual to the person. I do disclose my own experimentation with this. The reasons that I have done that are personal to me and they would be personal to you too. I don't think they should be. This is what I think. Okay. And this is my podcast. So I get to share my opinions. And sometimes my opinions are strong and I don't have strong opinions about things I don't know about, but I do have strong opinions about things I do know about. And I don't think that anybody should be judged for their choices. I also feel like this is this strange topic where women are not totally comfortable talking about it for some reason. And I have my theories about why, but it's okay to talk about this with me and with my team. And uh, in, you know, certainly if you're in the app and you're getting nutrition help for me, it's something that we can talk about. Now, this will make more sense once you listen to this episode, but you should never take advice from one minute uh, TikToks or reels or uh, what your friend does or what I do. When it comes to supplementation, medication, you really, that is you and your doctor, specifically your endocrinologist making choices for you. I have so many thoughts about HRT and the benefits and the downsides. The downsides are there is no end game and the benefits are going to be totally individual for each person. The most important thing I want you to take away from this episode when it comes to getting through this period in life is that if you are not willing to make the lifestyle changes that are going to help you, there's no amount of supplementation or medication that is going to miraculously change your physique, change the way you see the world, change the way you see menopause and change your menopausal symptoms. That is my opinion. And the reason that's my opinion is because I've seen it time and time and time again, where women come to me complaining of menopause, which is a little bit of a problem for me, but I understand what you're saying. But when they change their lifestyle, menopause is almost irrelevant. Like it's almost not a big deal. That is not everyone. I realize I have my best friend from childhood had has had incredible headaches. I don't have that problem. That's nothing I can take away from her. I've heard of that before. And I have I have people who uh, have had that symptom. And do you know what they do? They quit alcohol and they're willing to do that. And then they're, they're working on other nutrition things that they feel trigger it. I have some who say like high sugar supplementation will just boom, instant headache. Well, they're going to change that about what they do, right? So when you're working with me, being willing to change your habits and your lifestyle is essential. And that is where 
most people struggle because that could have implications to your social life. That could have implications to your, your marriage. Uh, lots of husbands and wives are, have this very similar eating habits and enjoy some cocktails, come home and have wine. And for the wife, it's wreaking havoc and the husband, it's no big deal. And you, that could be a bonding experience for you too. And so things have to change. So I've realized it's not easy when you ask somebody to change. It, it does not just, oh, you know, uh, to quit alcohol. Okay, Kendra, that's easy for you to say. Well, I've seen a lot of people go through a lot of changes in their life to be able to feel better through this phase of life. And I think we have to be willing to pivot. So you've heard me make recommendations about what I think you should be doing in all of my podcasts. But number one, I'm going to give you this before we dive into the episode. Number one, download my Strong Life app and get my workouts. It's so much fun. If you don't have a program now, it's the way to go. You can access me there through the message system also. Number two, get the First Form Nutrition app, which is where I coach my people. I can see what you're eating. I can see your nutrition, your uh, workouts. I can see your you know, subjective responses, how you feel, your mood, your sleep quality. We can message there. And I do daily announcements that will really be the thing that will help you keep you on track. I think a lot of people, it's just we're quitting too soon. We have unrealistic expectations for both medicine and what that can do and what exercise and nutrition can do. And we want it faster than it's going to happen. So if you're willing to stick with me, you know, I say like, give me at least a year because who cares, right? A year is going to come anyway. So what if you can be better off with me? And if you've seen my social media and you've listened to my podcast and you've heard stories of people there is, it's undeniable what lifestyle changes can do for you, not just externally, but your blood work, your health markers. And I've seen it so many times. And part of this, I, I swear it's about belief and the way you see menopause. I've changed the way I look at it. And I'll, I'll talk to you more about that in another episode, but that is enough for me. I want you to go in with those things in mind and just have the best time with this episode. Have the best time. It was so much fun. Always DM me with questions on any of the platforms, but if you're in my app, those are the people who get the special attention, obviously, because they're paying. So they're going to always get priority from me. So thank you guys for being here. Have the best time with this show and uh, let's get through this season kicking ass and just fall in love with the process. See you guys soon. So we are live in Team Strong Life now with Dr. Stacy Sims, who I have been talking about for years. We're also <laughs> recording on uh, Team Strong Life's uh, podcast, Strong Life with Kendra Jarrett. So I'm very excited. We've got you special guests live, which is just a total honor. And I'm going to have people drop comments and that kind of thing. And I'll share those with you and questions. So I first. Let's see. I, I think, how old is Roar? 2016. Came out in 2016. Okay. So I would say I got Roar probably right when it came out, I feel like. And my very good friend and running buddy at the time, who I was six years older than, said, you have to read this. I was starting to feel like things were changing for me. So she gives me Roar, uh, Nicole Tackett. She's now a running coach. And um, I think that was the first time I ever felt like it wasn't just in my head. 
you don't really know. That's what's so interesting about this time in life is you don't really, I don't feel like anybody prepares you for it. It's hard to identify like a start and stop to this period. So that book gave me, and I know it did it for a lot of people too, but that gave me a lot of hope, I think. How did this all start for you? How did your interest in this time in life start? I think like, because when I sat down and read the book with Celine, it was after I'd been at Stanford for a few years, working with Marcia Stefanik in the Women's Health Initiative um, database and working with some of the women that were still in the Women's Health Initiative. So for those who don't know what the WHI is, it was the very first massively huge, over 100,000 women study looking specifically at early and late postmenopause. Um, the first studies came out on, on late postmenopause, and then we were doing clinical studies as follow-up, but also I was pulling in early postmenopause and perimenopausal women. And so really trying to kind of understand what were hot flushes, what were some of the symptomology, how do we like really comprehend what's happening? And so that all just came part of my bubble. And it became like, hey, this is something that women do when they age. And then when I was talking to Celine and we were writing the book, it didn't really occur to me until I was talking to her that it's not part of everyone's bubble. Like it's like women's health is not part of everyone's bubble. Even menstrual cycle is not part of everyone's bubble. So I was like, well, that's not very fortunate because there's so much stuff we don't know about women and everyone should know this shouldn't be pushed under the carpet. It is something that everyone experiences. You know that, you know, they always say what death and taxes are absolutes in life. But for women, it's puberty, menstrual cycle, perimenopause, postmenopause. Those are absolutes. And there's so much that isn't talked about. And then the drop off of physical education and health education in high schools, then you still don't have the conversation about menstrual cycle. And then as you get older and you get into your career and you go to the doctor because you feel like you're going crazy and they're like, oh no, it's just because you're stressed and you're in that part of your career and you have kids and you have family and you just need to take a step back. And in actuality, all the symptomology is about perimenopause and postmenopause and people just don't know about it or talk about it. Yeah, I mean, they you definitely, I, I definitely think there is this and I, I actually do it myself. Like when somebody in this time in life is stressed, it, it sort of all makes sense. Like, yeah, of course you would, you would be going through that. All of these things are happening, but the fact that the symptoms are so, so similar for so many of us at the same time is like, it, it's not just your lifestyle. Now, as a nutrition coach and somebody who works with people on, you know, a variety of different, um, you know, uh, goals in terms of overall health, general lifestyle, there are things we're doing that are catching up with us. No, like, you know what I mean? Like excessive alcohol, we're, we haven't, you know, we're yo-yo dieting, like these things impact our menopausal symptoms, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even like I was reading a study to my husband this morning that came through from the lifestyle medicine group that I'm part of. And all the stuff I'm saying about like intermittent fasting, not being great, delayed eating, not being great. Now there's this massive study that came out and it's like people who delay their food intake until noon or after have a, a change in their circadian gene expression that makes them more predisposed to obesity, to type two diabetes, to cardiovascular events and stuff like that. 
So I think about all the women that have been following intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating, and they're also getting into perimenopause and they're told to be, you know, to do this and it exacerbates their symptoms. It exacerbates their risk factors. It's like, yeah. So all of the crazy stuff that people are doing because they've been told to do, or they think it's a good idea actually can exacerbate all of the perimenopausal symptoms. So interesting. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm jumping ahead to a little bit, but if we back up to um, your own, like I'm actually personally curious about your athletic background. So obviously I ran after you this summer at the ISSN conference, literally chased you. <laughs> it, was like, it came over me, Stacey, you were like trying to get away from everybody, but you graciously met me. I appreciate that. But I, I, I don't know a lot, a lot about your athletic background. And I was curious, um, about that. Yeah. How did I get to be here? I was younger of two, my older sister and my older sister, she didn't really like to get outside and play like I did. So when we were younger, I would go and ride my bike to get away from her. And we laugh about that story because it's like, oh, she wouldn't get on her bike and chase me, but I could ride my bike and get away from her. And I liked that feeling of like being physically active. And so I started really in ballet and then started running. And I got to a point where the instructor was like, you need to either choose between running and ballet. And I recommend running. I was like, okay. So this is about the time, you know, you hit puberty and you're all gangly and kind of not that coordinated. I was like, okay. So I ran cross country through high school. And then when it came time to go to university, they're like, oh, you should try for a cross country scholarship. And I was like, I'm burnt with running. I don't want to, I want to do something different. So I was, um, talking to a new friend at university and they're like, you should join the crew team because we do some running and we do a whole bunch of team stuff. And I was like, okay. So I did a rowing test and like, yeah, you have the VO2, let's put you in a boat. And so I joined the crew team. It was great. It was fun. But then when you get away from university, there really isn't rowing. And I was like, okay, what do I go back to? I'll get involved in, um, I got involved a little bit into triathlon, ultra running, that kind of stuff. And that kind of became the thing where I went from short distance triathlon and ultra running, which are not complimentary at all. Because mm -hmm. I ended up doing something like 20 marathons before I was 20. Wow. And then, yeah. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll get a little bit more into the bike stuff. So got into um, uh, trail running and short distance triathlon. And then I got involved in long distance triathlon and made it to Kona. So I raced uh, kind of like the Ironman circuit for a bit. Yep. And then I started my PhD and down in Dunedin where it's freezing cold because you're even closer to Antarctica. I was like, I'm not getting in that water. It's too cold. So then I started racing my bike, road bikes and got picked up and raced the world cup circuit for a bit. And then when I finished my PhD and went to Stanford for my postdoc, I, uh, raced professionally with Tipco. Oh, so nice. I do postdoc and racing bikes and, um, yeah, and really loved it, but then got to a point where my husband was like, you got to choose between bike racing career and marriage. And I was like, Oh, so that's kind of like the sign of you got to stop bike racing. I was like, okay, well, I'll go back to kind of like my tri routes, but off the off road stuff. And that way you can do some of the training with me. So then I went to Xterra 
and did Xterra for a few years, but the about six weeks before I did Worlds for the second time, I started going, I don't feel that great. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really connect until it was like the last weekend of really hard work before I went. And I was like, I just can't hit my metrics. And then I started counting backwards and I was like, oh my God, I think I'm pregnant. So uh, yeah, went home, tested, and I went into the office where my husband was. And I was like, we need to buy some more pregnancy tests because this one keeps coming up positive. <laughs> and he's like, you're not really going to go race in Maui, are you? I was like, of course I am. If anyone can deal with the heat, your wife can, because I did my PhD in, in heat and thermoregulation and menstrual cycle and all that kind of stuff. So I went to Maui and raced and then came home and um, had a relatively hard pregnancy and ended up tearing my hip labrum in childbirth and ended up having to have a hip replacement. So never really got back into racing after that. So yeah, then I started focusing on recovery and being a mom and career and just trying to stay fit. So that's, that's the evolution of my. That's the evolution. So interesting. How old is your daughter? She's 11 now. Yeah. Um, Sheesh. Wow. So that's quite a career in a, like you packed it in. (laughs) I packed it in. You packed it in. But on the same side of all of that, it's like when I was bike racing and in with the professional Peloton, I would get questions about training and nutrition. And then like I worked with Cliff Bar and launched a product. And then they're like, Hey, this guy over here, he's asking questions and you guys should talk. So then it's like, I created products on the outside of being an athlete and an academic. So as I was going through my sporting career, I was also answering questions in the lab and in the field because those kept coming up. So that was kind of like the driver for career as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've kind of gone hand in hand my obsession with being an athlete and being around athletes also drove my obsession in my career, my career path. So was, was roar around sort of time-wise for you are, are these, are these are a reflection of where you are too? Like much. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like our, I am also very interested partly because of this is, you know, I work with so many people who struggle but also the work you did and have done has, you know, really inspired me also because it's so fascinating, applicable and, and can be left to all of the generations to come, like your daughter, your granddaughter, you know, this is like really important and it's important to me too, you know, from a different perspective. Are you, when you wrote Roar, were you, um, and we'll get into the book, but I'm like curious about the author. Did you, um, was that the time in your life when you were trying to understand like menstrual cycle and your own performance, or was that something coming up in research you were doing? You mentioned that large study. Yeah. The women's health initiative. So, uh, yeah, kind of like going through it as doing a lot of seminars, I was teaching classes and trying to get people to understand sex differences and training performance understanding menstrual cycle irregularities because it was still like seeing so many of my teammates who would just all of a sudden break like it's like what happened there 
you know, you're going so well, you're such a great sprinter, you're a great hill climber, and then boom, performance off the rails, like couldn't do anything. And it always came back to, they were either on an oral contraceptive pill because they didn't have a period or they were amenorrheic. And it's like, I know that throughout my career and understanding that amenorrhea has a high incidence of bone stress fractures, it's like, okay, well, let's look a little bit more into the menstrual cycle and trying to understand like what's going on here. And there wasn't really a lot of research in and around the menstrual cycle, other than you hear about the female athlete triad. So, but we got to look at the prevention. Like we got to look at what's going on. What are some of the warning signs? How can we understand this a bit more? So that was all percolating. So I was giving talks on it and um, Celine always brings up a story that she went to the USA Cycling Coaching Summit and I was the first person that she ever heard mention the word period. And so she, we became, <laughs> right? And so she was the one who really instigated, let's write this book because there's so much information that you're giving out, but we want to condense it into one place and have it out in the world. So when she approached me about that, I was like, I don't know how to write a book. She goes, don't worry about that. You have the science. I know how to write it. Let's work together. So that when Roar came out, I was, I was in a very weird place in the fact that when we were writing it, I had just had Jera and I had launched a company a month before I gave birth and I moved away from my academic job at Stanford and moved to the North Bay to work on this startup. So there was a whole bunch of weird like things going on as well as trying to write this book. So it was a bit overwhelming and going through it all and trying to really kind of put personal experiences but also have kind of a step back of like, what do people need to know? So when I look back now, cause we're working on the second edition that comes out in January. I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that space. And now there's more things put in here that has come out and that I didn't really want to put in the book the first time because I didn't know if people wanted to know it. Um, but yeah, now now it's coming out. Uh, to 2.0. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. That yeah. is exciting. So then your so then your research really started focusing exclusively on women. Yeah, well, that started back in my master's degree. Long ago. Back, okay. Yeah, a long time ago. Because when I was doing my undergrad and really, like I said, I was on the crew team and I was really trying to understand training and why like my friends who were guys who were lightweights and they were doing the same training as us, why they would able they were able to actually get fitter and faster and peak at the right time. But our boat was kind of all over the show. And trying to dig into the ex-phys information that I was getting in class. And there wasn't anything about women. It was always the reference man and it was he or they, but never her. And then you look at the standards and it was all just downsized the shrink and pink of what the male data was. And I was like, surely there's differences. I mean, that's why you go to a shop and they have a women's section and a men's section and they have men's deodorant and women's deodorant. Why are we all like shoved together when we look at the basic molecular structure and hormone differences? And we know that women think differently and we respond to cold differently. So why, why are we not training differently? So that was always kind of undercurrent in my brain. And so when I went and did my master's degree, I wanted to understand overtraining. So I purposely overtrained endurance runners 
and female endurance runners who were naturally cycling. Cause I wanted to see if you're overtraining, what happens to your menstrual cycle? If you're overtraining, what happens to your mood? And so the information I was getting from this overtraining study was completely different than what was in the literature. So I thought I did it wrong, but my supervisor was smart enough to be like, no, it's because you've done it in women. And so you're not wrong. You, this is new information. Um, and so then that was like, yeah, okay, I get it now. So we look at things like proof, profile of mood states. We see that when men overtrain, they get more aggressive and they become more concentrated and they become more anxious. But when we look at women who are overtrained, they become more depressed, they lose their vigor, uh, they lose their appetite and they just become very lethargic and, and mentally just like, just don't want to do this. So it's like, okay, well, we see that. So when you're working with athletes and they're starting to have this apathy, it's like, okay, well, we either need to increase your food or we need to back down on your training. And back then there wasn't a thing of Red S. We didn't know about Red S. We just assumed that it was overtraining, but now we see how much they interfere and overlap. So understanding that about overtraining, then moving forward, and really trying to dig into research and help athletes and the athletes I worked with and as an athlete going, you know what, what you're doing is based on male protocol. We got to figure this out for women. So it was that kind of those turning points of experiencing undergraduate, not understanding why women weren't represented and seeing differences in the boat and then doing my master's degree specifically in women and then moving forward from there. So it was like everything that I did, I worked for an obesity surgeon, looked at the outcomes that were different for women than men. And why were we seeing more women? And just everything that was coming from all of my experiences were just like, okay, why is this not being addressed? Like, why are women being pushed in the same category as men from medical through sport? I, I actually, I liked what you said at the ISSN conference too. You made this very, very clear this is not a feminist issue. And I thought like, I didn't realize that that sh would be an important thing to say, but I, it, it is because it's, it's has nothing to do with, uh, with yeah. feminism. It's it just right. Like you're not a woman out here saying, you know, it's, it's like, we just need to see data for both. In fact, I was in a, my, uh, graduate program class last week and we were presented with uh, several charts and the results of these and what happens you know uh, to these subjects under cardiovascular stress and ex and the first thing I think now is I, are these men or women because it, I mean it's literally I was like Stacy would be so proud I didn't ask in the class but it will be the first thing that I look at when I do the homework for that class yeah Excellent. And it will be men. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, so, and it, it addressed body temperature, many things. And I was thinking, <laughs> let's talk about body temperature <laughs> for a minute here. Yeah. But it was very interesting that you just kind of, you just assume, oh, these are the results, but it's, it's so cool to go into it with that question. Yeah. Great. So that's the thing. It's like, I did that and no one else was doing it. But now that we've had these conversations, it's like, once you open that lens and go, I don't, don't have to look specifically through the male lens, I can look from kind of a different vantage point and then start asking those questions. Well, uh, 
is this the same response? Because if you're looking at body temperature and things like vagal response and cold water immersion, women's results are completely different from men. But if you're in a lab, they'll get thrown out because it doesn't fall in line with what's in the textbook because the textbook is 20 years old. It doesn't fall in line with some of the earlier research studies on cold water and temperature because that was all done on men. So it's like when you open your eyes and go, well, how come women have this sudden like extreme parasympathetic response with cold water immersion, but men don't? Well, the temperature gradient's different. Like women don't need to have as cold temperature as men to have some of the similar responses. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Wow. It's like we we have we have to know in these studies the yeah. the sex differences. It yeah. seems really relevant. What what's the biggest, this is kind of off a little bit, but in your training, what do you what do you think the biggest adjustment you made to your athletes or you make that is the difference or that is a result of the research between men and women? Like is it diet, training? Um okay. Yeah. So if I'm like I work with a lot of coaches now who have female athletes and trying to optimize. The first thing I ask both of them is, okay, menstrual cycle status or hormone status. Are you on oral contraceptive pill? Are you tracking your menstrual cycle? What are some of your patterns? And if they don't know, then I'm like, you need to figure that out first because I want to see what your patterns are. Then we know that we can dial in times of like, you will need to increase your power capacity. Well, let's find out the days where you feel optimal. And then we can really push on those training adaptations because the idea of training isn't that you're getting fitter in that session. You're getting fitter from the stress of that session and the recovery from it. Then we have to look at recovery. So we can tweak within it. If someone's on an oral contraceptive pill, I want to know what generation the progesterone component is because that can directly affect power production. So it's those kinds of things that, I think have changed for me instead of looking blanket. Okay, here's this woman, here's this man. We need X amount of this for a woman, X amount of this for a man. It's now, I want to understand your hormone influences and how your body's responding so that we can optimize training. We also know from a nutrition standpoint, when women are like not really nailing the intensities they need to, we supply a little bit of extra carbohydrate in and around and then boom, they can. But it's not that. 90 gram of carbohydrate that people talk about in an endurance sport because from a gut perspective, can't handle it. And then when we look specifically at metabolism, 30 grams is the max that a woman needs because it's just about keeping blood sugar going. Because if you get too much, then you shut down some of your liver feedback mechanisms for activating mitochondria. And if you have too little, you have the same thing. So you need that 30 gram sweet spot. So I have a lot of uh, women running the Chicago Marathon. Um, and for some it's the first, so let's use that 30 grams in, as an example. Cause now you're, now this is relevant because they've all read these books and they're always, always curious about, you know, pre-workout, intra-workout, post-workout. So you're saying, um, within a training session, 30 grams is really all I would need within yep. that. Workout. Yeah. Because it's not like people get so afraid, oh, I'm going to deplete my carbohydrate stores and I'm going to hit the wall. But women don't go into the depth of depletion that men do. Because we have a different feedback mechanism, we also have different proteins in our mitochondria that allow us to use more free fatty acids. 
But the thing about it is, like I was saying, if our liver is perceiving too many free fatty acids, then it actually feeds back to mitochondria to, hey, stop pulling them in because we need to regenerate some of the um, glucose because we need to elevate our blood glucose. But if we have too much blood glucose or we have too much carbohydrate, then it shuts down some of the mitochondria feedback to use free fatty acids too, because now the body's like, wait, I've got too much carbohydrate. I got to use that. So we see a high oxidation rate to a point for women when we're taking in carbohydrate. But again, when you start getting over that 30 gram mark, we start seeing, yeah, more exogenous carbohydrate oxidation, but there's no increase in performance where if we keep that 30 gram mark, we don't have these swings and roundabouts of, oh my gosh, I feel awful. I need more carbohydrate. Right. Right. Because when we see fasted training using uh, like a continuous glucose monitor and like blood glucose sticks, when women are going out for a three or four hour run, they stay metabolically stable, even though they haven't had any fuel. And then as soon as you give them fuel, they have this massive hyperglycemic response and then a hypoglycemic response before they start coming back into a neutral. And it takes a long time to get back into that neutral. But if they're only having 30 grams, it keeps their blood sugar at this kind of perturbative state that the body can use it to keep them humming along. And then they don't have this big upsurge and downsurge. And I see it all the time, especially in the later stages of an endurance race, like the marathon, where people are like, oh, I'm going to hit the wall when I hit 20 miles. And so they'll start taking in all this carbohydrate, not hit the wall. And then the last six miles, they're dying. And like, what's going on? I need more carbohydrate. But no, it's because you're having this big up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. I, I'm, I have so many regrets right now. I just wish I had known about this <laughs> 15 it's years. Not regrets. It's not oh, regrets. You know what I mean, though? It's like, oh, like I, I'm, I'm like crashing thinking about that is how we trained. That right. is what right. we did. Yeah. They're yeah. just like, um, somebody here is asking in the group, I have a marathoner uh, triathlete who's asking, Hey, 30 grams for the whole race for a marathon per hour per hour. Yeah. Not, I mean, not saying 30 grams, but like, let's say, uh, and we will get to your lift, your lift heavy shit. Uh, I want to know where that came from, but yeah, that might be a different feed for carbs, but let's say 30 grams per hour, roughly. Right. Yeah. 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 And so when we see all this training and stuff about becoming metabolically flexible or metabolically efficient, I kind of sit back and laugh. I'm like, actually, the dudes do that to become more like women because <laughs> women are already metabolically flexible because we have different sensors in the liver. We have different um, mitochondrial structure. So when we're looking at metabolic flexibility, women are super metabolically flexible. One, we do that across the month anyway, because of our hormone flux, but two, because we are specific to this sweet spot of blood glucose and free fatty acid use that the body can switch quickly. Men, they don't have that because they'll completely deplete their glycogen stores. And then they'll be like, oh, I'm hitting the wall. I better have more carbohydrate. But that's why you see all this metabolic efficiency training. Let's train fasted. Let's increase our free fatty acid use because it's male data and men's bodies need to do that. But for women, we're already there. We don't need to do it. And you define metabolically flexible. It's the ability to switch between carbohydrate and fat utilization without having big swings in your energy. 
So, you know, when you're, uh, I guess the best way to describe what it feels like is if you're doing a long endurance session and you use some caffeine and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I feel really lightheaded. Like I just hit the wall. It's because you've had this big, huge clear out of, of blood glucose because caffeine really makes your body take in a lot and use a lot of carbohydrate. So when men aren't metabolically flexible and they use carbohydrate, like 90 grams of carbohydrate, they feel it. They feel it all the time because their body doesn't know what to do with the extra free fatty acids that have come out. So that's why they do the fasted training. So their body's like, oh, okay, this is how we use free fatty acids. And then we use some carbohydrate. So they're actually trying to instigate the same feedback mechanism that women already have. So men are, men are training fasted in a, like an endurance sport scenario. Yeah. That's where you see all this, do your fasted okay. training. Yeah. But we. Interesting. Well, I think the other thing that's confusing for a lot of women is that, you know, I can pick a few people that, um, women, my age that are out there talking about intermittent fasting and, uh, you know, keto diets and that kind of thing. And they're, they're, they look fit, right? So when you have a fit person on social media, who's your age, who's saying like these, this is how I do it. Um, and it's when, frustrating. well, it's, it's tricky. Right. And then, and, and so, um, it's really difficult. I don't know if we can necessarily combat all of that. That's, that will forever be in advertising, you know, but, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, remember, social media is very much like a magazine with Photoshop, right? Because you'll see all these women that look super fit and strong. And they're like, I do all this weight training stuff. And then you go download their program after paying some money. And it's all body weight stuff. And you know that that's not how they got there. Yeah, you're, you're like, no, but I want to know what you do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just like just like, you know, um, you see the CrossFit games are on and stuff and all the people that are winning, they don't just do CrossFit. They do so much other different kind of training, just like a baseball player, just like a football player. So what you're seeing in the representation is only a small snippet. And when you look at people who are intermittent fasting, are they really, or are they just doing time-restricted eating where they don't eat after dinner and then they eat breakfast and call it intermittent fasting? When you look at the ketogenic diet, oh my gosh, it's like a cult. Because people will be like, I had so much success. So from an aesthetics, maybe, but from an internal point of view, and we're looking at like gut microbiome and we're looking at brain health and we're looking at cardiovascular fitness, not so healthy. We have a lot of evidence now that shows that the ketogenic diet is really only beneficial for people with TBI. It's mm. not something that should be used in general health and fitness. And then that's the problem we have when you have all of this clinical work that shows you know, a lot, a lot of weight loss, right? Because they need it before they have surgery. Oh, look, this person lost a lot of weight. Let's bring it into health and fitness world and we'll promote it as a weight loss, but it's not appropriate for that population. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it, you said it when you started too, these are social media is advertising. So if you look at it through that lens, like some, you know, it's going to be the best foot forward with whatever it is they're yeah. trying to sell. I mean, Absolutely. there's usually a program or a product or something in there. Yeah. And it's usually going to be one time, just a big one time fee because there's no, there's no, there can be no guarantee of, uh, you know, results long-term or lifestyle changes. You know, that work is hard. 
That is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's hard. It's, it's a, it's a hard path you are taking and, and even me to try to, you know, educate and spend our time doing things like this to, to bring people information and bring them in so they can kind of quiet that noise. Um, yeah. And I feel like, I know that we sell um, courses for education and now I see all these other people that are selling courses and I'm like, wait, no, I'm selling it not to make, <laughs> no. I'm selling it for education. And then like, my husband's always like, you need to let people know that like every time you go to a conference or like you're going to present to con Congress, it's because someone's bought your course. So they're helping you spread the message. It's like, yeah, I know. But how do you compete with that with social media when everyone's like, I've got this greatest thing here. Why don't you spend your money here? So it is hard. It is hard to get through the noise, right? Yeah. But I think like there is something about the the books you've written and your message that makes sense to people. It is one reason why I love our demographic because I think they've, we've, it's like not our first rodeo. Right. You know what I mean? Like we've all tried all the things. So when you finally meet somebody who's like, it's actually none of those things, it's going to be, it's going to be like consistency. It's going to be committing to the process, adapting as we age. Yep. trying new things. All right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to ask a big, huge question. Okay. Can we define menopause here today? I know it's simple, but it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Um, so from a clinical standpoint, the official definition of menopause is one day on the calendar that marks 12 months of no period. But from a real life point of view, someone will go 11 months and then they'll get their period. And so then, although they have another period for 11 months, all of a sudden they're supposedly not menopausal. But if you look at your FSH level, which is becoming more and more of the standard where someone will have irregular to no periods and it's been six months and they get their FSH level tested and it's significantly elevated, then they might have a period, but it falls before that 12 month point, their physician will still consider them menopausal. So there's some nuances within it where it's changing. But if we talk across the board and we're like, okay, it's one point in time marking 12 months of no periods, that's the official definition. Okay. So what about it. someone like me who had a hysterectomy still has my ovaries? Yep. So if you're tracking basal body temperature, and you can figure out when you ovulate because you still have your ovaries, you're still going to ovulate. Um, and so you can do that through basal body temperature. But if you're like, mm, I don't really know if I can do that because I'm so irregular and you can get your luteinizing hormone tested and your FSH level tested. And if you have previous blood markers for that, then you can see evolution of time and change. So, you know, basically when someone has had a hysterectomy and they still have their ovaries, I really have people track their basal body temperature using a specific basal body temperature thermometer, not the wearables of skin temp, because that doesn't work. Okay. Um, and so you can start seeing patterns. So I think the confusion that I read, because I, the most common scenario for me would be somebody who is you know, somewhere in their forties and, uh, they have 
reach some point where they kind of can't take it anymore. They're uncomfortable. It could be they did, never had a fitness lifestyle and they want to build one. It could mm-hmm. be like you've talked about in your books, uh, kind of a washed up athlete who's like, wait a minute, whoa, life is short. I would like to find that person again. Those are really fun to work with too. Cause there is, yeah. you can kind of tap, you can see like when she taps into it, it's amazing, but the theme is the same. And it's, it's that, oh, menopause. And so it's hard for a woman to know if she's in it, but also I'm surprised, I guess, that it's not that hormones aren't more in the definition of menopause. Like, yeah, I know because it's, yeah, because it is at one point in time and it can start perimenopause is the time before, and that can be in your late thirties, early forties when that starts. And that's really hard to define because there isn't any like definitive marker for it. You just start seeing changes in your ratios of your estrogen and progesterone, and then start seeing systematic changes and systemic changes. But there's nothing that you can go and measure in a doctor's office. There's nothing you can measure in your blood to say, hey, you're in perimenopause. We see like four or five years before that one point in time called menopause is where we have a significant amount of body composition change in most women. In active women, not so much. What we do see is a significant drop in power and speed. So people are running and all of a sudden they're like, why can't I hold my seven minute mile pace anymore? I'm down to nine minute mile and I feel like that's as hard as I can go. It's because you've had a change in your estrogen progesterone ratio. And from from an athletic standpoint, seeing this decrease in your performance and going, I don't understand what's going on. I'm doing all the things, but it's just like, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm fighting everything every day. It's because you've had these changeovers, but there's no way to really identify it. So like I said, menopause is clinically said one day on the calendar, but it doesn't account for all the hormone changes that are happening in the years before. And then right after that one day uh, in time on the calendar is now postmenopause, where your hormones completely flatlined. So it's really confusing in the early stages of the menopause transition to really identify what's going on because you can't definitively say, hey, here's this blood test that says my progesterone has dropped out, my estrogen is really high, or my testosterone is starting to decrease. Is that perimenopause or is that age? Yeah. I mean, perimenopause is interesting. What you've talked about that obviously a lot, this is five to 10 years pre menopause. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what you see for symptoms and just the general population. Uh, so general active population, general. Active population. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I'll, I'll definitely have women start complaining about like they can't hit high intensities. Okay. Dropped. Um, they often have a lot of soft tissue injuries, plantar fasciitis. They might have, uh, you know, bone stress injuries or hamstring uh, tears or something like that. That's really soft tissue oriented. Might have more uh, joint pain. So these are all things that, as an athlete, you're like, oh, I'm injured again. What's going on? It's because your estrogen has dropped. And estrogen is really responsible for joint and ligament and tendon and soft tissue integrity. 
we'll also see an increase in body fat and people are like, what, uh, what's going on? Why, why all of a sudden do I have a little bit of, of a muffin top? And it's like, Hmm. Okay. Well, that's because your body is changing and it's telling you that you're in this high stress state and it's telling the hypothalamus that you need to conserve. And unfortunately in this time period where your baseline cortisol is elevated, then you put on more of a cereal and abdominal fat. So those tend to be like the first one is all about the performance and the soft tissue injury and slowdown and lack of power and lack of speed. Those are the first signs. And then we start seeing actual body composition. And then if you're really unlucky, you'll start having mood changes, vasomotor symptoms, night, night sweats, poor sleep, all of the typical symptomology. But the earlier stuff, people just go, oh, I'm not training right, or I'm not eating right. But actually it's a misstep in, in the hormones. Can you explain how increased cortisol would would uh, have us accumulating particularly fat around the midsection? So some cortisol is good, but cortisol is our stress hormone. And when we start having these changes in our estrogen progesterone ratios, the body is under stress and in a sympathetic drive. So it's always in this fight or flight um, kind of sensation. And when you're in that fight or flight, the body is like, I need to conserve fuel because I might have to fight and get away. And then I don't know if there's any other nutrition coming in for a while. So it really starts to prepare the body for survival for the most part. But the, instead of like going, I'm gonna put more intramuscular fat in because you've had a change in estrogen progesterone, which is really responsible for blood sugar control for where you put in your body fat, there's a miscommunication. So it starts to become more deep visceral fat because that is fat in and around the organs, which is a survival mechanism. So when we're looking at, you know, like training, if we're doing heavy lifting and we're doing high intensity work, we end up with this crosstalk between skeletal muscle and fat deposits. And the skeletal muscle is um, releasing a lot of exerkines, which are, you know, side effects and, and metabolites from exercise that then tells the body, we don't need a cereal fat. We don't need to store it there. So when we see what happens in this age group, and we've all been so conditioned to calories in calories out, you want to lose weight. You got to put in the volume. That's exactly the opposite thing that your body needs at this point, because if you're doing long volume and you're not eating a lot, you're again, increasing cortisol. And then you're right back into that sympathetic drive and putting in more visceral fat. So if we talk a little bit about your recommendations for, I mean, there's a lot of women who say how much hit I've heard hit increases my cortisol. That isn't good for me. Like I think all of us at this age are worried that any stress is going to increase increase body fat. That's like what we're women are thinking about. Yeah. So I, yeah, I really hate that conversation about, I can't do hit because it increases cortisol for anyone. Yes. But the follow through that is not said in this conversation, especially in our age group is that if you're doing hit properly, hmm. the post-exercise response is an increase in growth hormone, an increase in testosterone and an increase in our parasympathetic drive. And those are three really critical things that we need. 
But the problem with the hit conversation is people think orange theory or F45 or. Oh, don't get me started. (laughs) She didn't. You just, I feel triggered. I know me too. I get so so triggered. You know, those are not hit. That is not hit. No, that is moderate intensity. It might feel hard because you're trying to push at a certain level, but you cannot maintain true high intensity for those 45, 50 minutes. Also, also, side note, I did F45. I was picking up sandbags heavier than the 6'2 guy next to me. Like, it's not a strength training, strength training session if it's two rounds of 15 pounds for, you know what I mean? Like, that's the other thing is they're like, it's strength. No, it's not strength training. It's cardio. I don't care. I don't care what you say at 45. It's cardio. Unless you know how to, there's not even enough weight in there actually. Or orange theory. I, I, don't get me started on that. Cause they're like, here's the resistance training and get so many splat points. I'm like, you have a 55 pound dumbbell as the heaviest weight. Like uh, that's not even, yeah, no, that, and you're lucky if you have that, right. It's like, that is not heavy. Well, lifting. It's cardio. Just like, let's just say it's a cardio workout. That's fine. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It can be a fun cardio workout. Yeah. But you're, but it doesn't, Fit and hit it doesn't fit in strength okay so tell us and by the way uh, people should know this too like everything we're talking about here including protocols like detailed protocols are in next level so like you can get the nitty-gritty in that book and we have cheat sheets on our website i say our because it's not just me like i have a team of people so you want to know what true hit yeah so so you say true hit let's what's it like four minutes six minutes. So the longest interval for a true hit workout should be four minutes. And that would be like 80%. So if we're looking at like a cyclist who's doing a VO2 session and they're like two minutes on two minutes off, something like that, that can be a true hit session because you're hitting that 80, 85%, you're 110% of your functional threshold power but you need adequate recovery. So you're kind of oscillating between 80, 85% as an effort and then recovery is down around that 50%. So you're definitely polarizing. But then you have sprint interval training, which is included in it. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it's not Tabata. It's not 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off. That is not sprint interval training. It's going full gas for 30 seconds or less and then full recovery in between. Because you're trying to get a, a, you know, a fast twitch fiber recovery and essential nervous system recovery. So it could be four minutes between your 30 second bouts, not 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off, because that puts you in moderate intensity again. Yeah, right. You can only go so hard 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off. Right. Uh, how long would you say? Like total? I, yeah. Um, so for a true hit workout, like you might have four or five rounds of that two to four minutes, right? And right. for sprint interval training, that's variable. I have women like, why can't I do 20 se- or twenty rounds of 20 seconds? Because you cannot maintain full gas for 20 rounds of 20 seconds. You might start with three or four and you might work your way up to eight and that's it. So what's, what's the benefit of body composition pers- perspective? 
So when you do the true sprint interval training, that really top, top end, that's kind of taking over what progesterone needs to do with blood glucose control and reducing the cereal fat. So you're instigating this really incredible stress and you're having more of a, a, a recurrence of GLUT4 expression in the muscle. So it becomes more of an epigenetic change over time where your body's like, I can pull in more carbohydrate without insulin. So it gives you more insulin sensitivity, gives you more blood glucose control, and it also really decreases the signal for visceral fat. If we're doing high intensity interval training or HIIT workout, that's more cardiovascular stuff where we're looking at better vascular compliance because estrogen is so tightly tied to endothelial function. So that's your body's response to um, constriction and dilation, the nitric oxide. And when we lose estrogen, we lose that constriction um, dilation response. But if you're doing true high intensity interval training, you get better response of the blood vessel. So it reduces cardiovascular risk factor, but you're also having that higher intensity work that's helping with putting in more intramuscular fat, as well as giving your signal from the skeletal muscle to body fat to say, yeah, we don't need you body fat. I think that's what everyone's trying to do. I'm, I'm also fighting this idea that, you know, a lot of women just don't want to have body fat. <laughs> if we, need, we need to have. What is wrong with us, you know, but. Well, that's that yeah. sociocultural conditioning, right? Yeah. We've been told so long, like growing up in nineties in the supermodels and Kate Moss, that's what you're supposed to look like. And if you that look weight of anything, then you're, you know, on the outlier and you're too masculine. Um, and it's good to see things have changed a little bit where now it's okay to have muscles. Really? Okay, great. I'm glad it's okay to have muscles because I want to be able to lift things and run and throw and, you know, walk down the street when I'm 80 and not break a hip. Okay. Your training moved into endurance. We kind of got your background too. Tell me where you started getting into lift heavy and where that came from. Yes. Um, when I was in high school, one of my good friend's brothers was into bodybuilding. And so she started going to the gym with him. And so we, she's like, you should do this. If you're running cross country, you know, you should get stronger too. I was like, okay. So I started becoming really comfortable in the gym. That's back like, okay. That's so 80s. <laughs> the firm workouts, the videotapes that you got and yeah, you have your weights. By the way, um, one of the students before you go and when you were speaking at ISSN, you finish speaking, she gets off stage and he's like, she is jacked. <laughs> Just so you know, oh. I, I had no idea. Yeah, I was, you should be very proud. I, I know you work for those. Yeah. But then part of it is just training history because yeah. then even though I got into like, well, you know, weight lifting is a really big part of crew rowing, like bench pulls, squats, deadlifts, all that kind of stuff. So all through undergrad, I was lifting because of rowing. And then when I got into my master's degree, surrounded by exercise, phys and sports science, it's like going to the gym was just part of it. So the gym work's been all the way through. I had a big break when I was doing Ironman stuff because there was no time. Okay. Priority. And I started going, I feel awful. And I'm standing in a bar and this guy comes up to me, the worst pickup line ever. With shoulders like that, you must be a swimmer. I was like, I don't have definition. I need to get back in the gym and get definition because I just <laughs> have swim. 
Um, yeah, but then really looking at the evolution of strength training and really learning more about how the mess, the crosstalk and the messaging and neural connections and all the things that people want from exercise comes from strength training. And when I'm trying to break that whole mentality that you have to go long and slow to get fit, it's like, actually, no, drop the LSD and go for a lift heavy. And so that was something that I introduced at an endurance conference, like drop LSH and go for, what was it? No, drop LSD, which is long, slow distance and go for LHS, which is lift heavy shit. Yeah. Lift, like, what? Yeah. yeah. Lift heavy shit because you're getting muscle definition, muscle strength, muscle power. You're getting um, better cardiovascular responses because your body has to have better um, cardiovascular and vascular control for muscle contraction and blood flow. And you change things in your gut microbiome that improve brain health. So why wouldn't you do strength training for life? And then on the side effect, of course, you begin to look better. Yeah, you look better, feel better. I mean, yeah. So when you, what type of training are you doing now? And what would you, what do you recommend for our, I'm back in CrossFit. I started back this summer. I wanted to commit it and I'm so happy. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, yeah. I brought up with CrossFit, but I think it was more the gym I was in rather than the actual mode. And when people are in CrossFit, I'm like, look, you're paying to go. So make the class work for you. So if you're like, okay, today I'm a little bit tired and I really do need to do some heavy lifting, then you use the strength component of the class for the heavy part. And then you use a Metcon a little bit lighter weight as, you know, so you can definitely make it work for you. It's tricky though. It, it, it is it is tricky. I, I quit for a long time too, but now that I'm, I feel like I can, I have a little more authority over my own, what I do. Yeah. In so I, you broke up with it. Did you keep the concept? Yes, because I found a new gym that really appeals to the stuff that I like to do. So it's three times a week, pure strength development. Mm. So it's, we go through six to eight week cycles. Uh, so Monday is squat focus. Wednesday is a push pull focus. Thursday is a deadlift posterior chain focus. And then Friday is a capacity, which is CrossFit esque, but it's all about 30, 20 to 30 minutes of just working on capacity. So like today we had devil's press and a little bit of a run and some wall balls. And so it's all functional movement stuff. And so you get that high intensity like feeling and it's all full body stuff. So I'll do, that's kind of like the gym work. And then I'll throw in some early morning swims. And then on the weekend, the soul food where I'm a cyclist. I've been riding my bike since I was six. I love riding my bike. I race bikes across the world. And so now I go with friends and we just go mountain biking or gravel riding for soul food. So just maintaining balance, coordination, fitness, fun, doing something you yeah. love, active, and then the strength training. So that's three days a week of strength training. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was going uh, much more and over the last probably six weeks, I thought, I think my sweet spot is four. Yeah. That, that feels right to me right now. Yeah. Two is not enough for me. No. And a lot of times recently I've had to miss Thursdays because I have a really early morning meetings that last all the way through. 
And then by the time the afternoon comes to go to like the 4.30 class, I'm too tired. I was like, oh, it's just not enough. I feel like really, I don't know, out of sorts. So three is bare minimum for me where I really feel good and strong, sleep well, get good cognition. So I'm like, yeah, I need to maintain that three times a week of heavy lifting. So let's talk a little bit too about your 40 grams of protein post-workout recommendation. Mm -hmm. So this is a big one. Pre-workout uh, nutrition and post-workout nutrition for me personally have been, I'd say one of the biggest impacts, like noticeable, even physique, muscle development, strength, you know, unbelievable for me. So it's always nice to hear the research is there. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we look at like the pre stuff, we know women do better in a fed state. Cause like I said, we're already metabolically flexible. And if we start doing any kind of exercise, regardless of what age we are without any kind of fuel on board, then it can backfire from a hypothalamus point of view because the hypothalamus for women is, is more sensitive to nutrient density and nutrient status than men. So if we want to maximize things like our strength training, we know from Abby Smith-Ryan's lab that if you have around 15 grams of protein before strength training, it increases your amino acid circulation, which then feeds forward to recovery and helps keep metabolism elevated. It helps trigger muscle protein synthesis and recovery. And then you can have your extra bit of the 40 grams right after. So you can kind of split it. If you're doing cardiovascular, you have to add that 30 grams of carbohydrate before training. The post-exercise higher dose of amino acids and that 40 gram dose is because we become more anabolically resistant from a muscle tissue standpoint as we get older. And for women, we don't age in a linear fashion like men, because you'll see this in the research of 60 year old plus men where, yeah, okay, now we need to up their dosage. But for women, it's this perimenopausal state because our body needs more amino acids, but it's not as sensitive because we've lost estrogen. And estrogen is like responsible for basal cell responses to develop muscle protein. It's also responsible for myosin bonding to actin and how fast the nerve conducts over gap junction to create a muscle contraction. We need more amino acids because we don't have estrogen. So we have to have a 40 gram dose to see any kind of real response. You'll see in some of the literature where they have young versus old giving them a 20 gram dose and like, well, there was no response. So women who are older, yeah, the 20 grams doesn't work, but they don't follow through. If you yeah. follow through, you follow through and you're like, hey, wait, now we're seeing the evidence that 10 grams of essential amino acids post-exercise gives you this trigger. Well, if you look forward to what is 10 grams of essential amino acids, that's around three to three and a half grams of leucine, which is a 40 gram dose of protein. Interesting. So you start seeing, seeing that all the muscle protein synthesis and recovery and feedback mechanisms happening with around that three to three and a half gram dose of leucine for older women. And older being when you start hitting that, they say older as in 45 and above. Let's talk about the window to the 30 minutes or so, because there is the, uh, you know, the anabolic window myth. So when you say a woman needs 30 grams within about a half an hour, yeah, this is not an anabolic window. 
So when we look at that and we're like, why is there not an anabolic window? Because when they started doing the research and looking at it, it's strength training only. And it was in men. And we see that men have a longer time to return to baseline for euglycemia and muscle protein synthesis and amino acids. For women, we see that we return to baseline within an hour. And this is uh, with regards to euglycemia or blood glucose control and the way our body responds to recovery. So if we aren't getting that nutrition in, then we're actually not getting the full adaptations that we want. So when we look at the research and all, there's no anabolic window that came from a meta-analysis meta that Brad Schoenfield did early days and saying, hey, wait, yeah, there's no, there's no window. We just have to have regular doses across the day because then that keeps an amino acid level at a certain point that can stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Then it turns off and it comes back on and turns off. But for women, because from an exercise standpoint, we return to baseline so quickly, then we lose that if we don't put that protein in right after. Okay. So that also, so why is it important to have that protein in before we return to baseline and baseline being like exactly what, like my blood blood pressure is back to normal. My, what is baseline and why, what happens in that, that time period? So baseline is, is when you come back down to a resting state. So your metabolism is back down, all your hormones are back down, you know, your heart rate, your respiratory rate, everything's back down to how you were when you first woke up in the morning. When we're looking at like responses for adaptation. And like I said, you have that boost of growth hormone and testosterone post-exercise, you want some nutrition to come in to help with that. But that boost in growth hormone and testosterone in women doesn't stay out there. You want some nutrition to come in. And the other really big caveat is that if you aren't bringing some nutrition in, then you're staying in this breakdown state, this catabolic state. And your hypothalamus perceives that as, hey, there's not enough nutrition. So it really starts downregulating, starts downregulating thyroid, starts downregulating endocrine function. And the very first thing to go in a catabolic state is your lean mass because it's metabolically healthy or hungry, right? It's a very active tissue. So if you're trying to build muscle and then you don't eat, you're not really building muscle. You're just breaking it down. Right. It reminds me, I mean, I have such a visual of somebody just spinning their wheels, you know, uh, I'm doing these things and nothing is working and I'm do, you know, it's like you, you're probably repeatedly doing all the wrong things, you know, and it, and for me, like I said, it's so interesting how that adding in the nutrition post and pre even for me, and certainly during workouts changes. Yeah. It changed everything. (laughs) And, And also I did observe fewer like afternoon crashes. I suppose it's just part of feeding yourself. Like you're tanking yourself in a workout. And then I think a lot of us still think I'm just going to go as long as I can without food and just burn that fat. You know, I'm just going to keep burning that fat for fuel. If I don't eat, it's doesn't seem to work like that. It doesn't because it burns your muscle and not your fat because your body's like, I'm conserving the fat, but I'm going to use this muscle instead. Right. So yeah, it is totally. And then you have that three to 4 PM, like complete crash. You're like, I'm so tired. I'm going to get some caffeine. And that doesn't help either because your body is just like, right. Fuel. So, all right. Do you have 10 minutes for questions? Sure. Okay. 
<laughs> no, <laughs> put you on the spot there. I think, I mean, we've addressed some of the big ones um, that you've, we've all heard you talk about in red intermittent fasting, touched on keto. The big one that I think people are super curious about is HRT. The books address, and, and a lot of women looking into testosterone specifically. So full disclosure, and I haven't talked to my team about this yet, but I started a low dose of testosterone, which has helped tremendously with energy. And I've waited really to see, like, I don't usually announce things or talk about it until I'm comfortable and I understand it. And I, I have done blood work for several years now. So the time felt right for me to try. Also, I have a lot of people who do it. And I think it's been helpful for me. I think the biggest problem I have, and I talked with you about this is kind of like, what is the end game? Like, yeah. what is the end game? So yeah. a lot of people are confused. We've had those, whatever that research was that blew up about uh, cancer causing and a lot of misconceptions. So you, it's your, it's your wheelhouse. What are your thoughts? So it is a tool in the toolbox of this point in our life, right? Because like I said, we don't age in a linear fashion. We have this discernible like plot as our ovarian hormones start to wind down. If you think about puberty, Anything about how crazy teenagers are going through puberty, it's because they're having this sudden exposure to all these different levels of hormones. We're on the other end where we're starting to have a reduction of all this. So of course we have all these systems that go crazy. And we know that menopause hormone therapy, when it started perimenopause, early postmenopause, it can be very beneficial and the benefits outweigh the negatives. And the reason for that is because as we are going through the loss of our natural ovarian hormones, we also lose sensitivity to our estrogen progesterone receptors. So if we start it later, we don't have as many of these receptors. And this is where we start to see all of these issues of cancer risks, dementia risks, breast, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, all those kinds of things, late postmenopause. When we look at some of the research that's coming out now on menopause hormone therapy, the one thing that's not being said is it does not replace your hormones to the level that you had before you hit perimenopause. These hormones are not metabolized the same way as your natural hormones. And they don't do anything to promote lean mass gain, body fat loss. They will slow the rate of the loss down. They'll slow the rate of the body fat accumulation, but you do have to put in interventions and changes to your training to actually make it work. Menopause hormone therapy has been designed to help with all of the massive daily uh, symptoms that interfere with just being normal. So that's your vaginal dryness, your hot flashes, your mood changes, inability to sleep, inability to cope with stress, all of those things that are more brain oriented, not body composition oriented. They have now said that using menopause hormone therapy can slow the rate of bone mineral density loss, which is great. So if you have a risk factor for osteopenia, then you can consider it, but it's not the first go-to. No. And I think that's the, that's the problem. Like you have all this push to get on it. It's not the first go-to. It's on the table of tools. We have adaptogens, we have exercise interventions, we have nutrition interventions, we have mindfulness, we have sleep hygiene, we have MHT. They're all there. 
right? And some women don't even have to go on MHD. They can do all these other things and get it. But then if you're someone like you or me, low testosterone, like my, after my daughter, all of my hormones completely bottomed out. And I've had issues with testosterone across the way. And I'm in that play field. It's like, well, I feel all right. And they're like, well, you should really go on MHT. I was like, I don't want to go on MHT because I don't have any symptomology. So it is that discussion where your doctor might be like, here, take it. And then you can make that decision. Well, do I really need it or not? It's not that I'm afraid of side effects. It's just, I never went on an oral contraceptive pill because I just didn't want to take exogenous hormones. And I still kind of feel that same way, but that's my personal choice. So it's really up to you as the individual to see where you are in this journey. What do you need? Try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, then you can get off it. But there's no like real set definitive point where you have to use it. You right. don't get to use it. And I, I just want to really dive into this for a minute here too, because I think I have many people that come to me and are either on it, but the lifestyle choices are garbage. Yep. Not resistance training. They're drinking. They're not running the play. They're not adhering to any sort of nutrition plan that's helpful. And they're blaming menopause. So this is, this is the biggest, one of the biggest problems I have. This would be a last resort, I would say like an absolute. So for me, oddly, I have no progesterone, no testosterone. Estrogen is high. So I have these strangest yeah, it's, it has wreaked havoc on me and there's no more, nothing more I can do. My yeah. lifestyle is boring and pristine. I don't drink. I don't, you know, that's years though of in the making. So like you have to get the resistance training, protein diet, and be willing to do that. Cause the, the, because I have so many women who go on it and nothing happened. It's not going to miraculously it's not, it, you will be disappointed. Exactly. I chasing, you'll be chasing, you'll be chasing the balance, you know? Right. Right. It does not make problems go away. It'll no. slow the rate of change, but it's not going to make the change stop. Right. So let's see, people are asking about dosing. I mean, that is a, I would say, do you have any thoughts on dosing? People no, that's very, a lot of questions here about testosterone. Yeah. So dosing is very independent. I'm more about the form and the formulation. So you want to look at getting an estradiol, micronized estradiol and micronized progesterone. So that can either like for the micronized estradiol, that's usually the patch. And the micronized progesterone is either a pill or a cream, but you don't want to go for conjugated because that's where you start to see problems. We see that in the literature. If you get conjugated estrogens or conjugated progesterones, that's when you start to see problems. Okay. Testosterone, this is an interesting one because there's two methods that you can go with testosterone if you need to raise it. So some doctors will say, let's put you on estradiol and, and progesterone like two weeks on one or two weeks off because that will stimulate your body to do more of its own natural conversion of that estradiol to testosterone. Others will be like, no, we're just gonna go low dose testosterone to help 
kind of stimulate, bring your levels up and stimulate some of that conversion. So those are two different methods from a medical standpoint of bringing testosterone up. The other aspect about testosterone is if you're doing a lot of strength training and then feeding the protein afterwards, you're going to increase natural testosterone levels. Early days of lower testosterone, that can work. Later days of lower testosterone, you're really going to have to look for some medical help. <laughs> right. And I think it's about getting through this time. I think the, the, you know, like I've said, you and I talked about like, first of all, what is the end game? And second of all, yeah, my mother has said many times you do, you do balance back out. You sort of yeah. like you get to zero. So I thought to myself, well, I'll try this. Cause at worst case, it's, it's just, it was zero. I mean, almost. So that will just be it again. You know, I'm not tanking anything, but it's super important too, though. I ha I really struggled to find somebody who could help me. I learned enough to be an advocate for myself because if you get in the wrong hands, they'll give anybody anything. I mean, it's just not even a discussion. Like if you have the cash, <laughs> they'll take it. Yeah, there was an editorial in the British Menopause Society from a physician who's like, it's getting way out of hand. I'm seeing women with really super high doses of estradiol because they're like, oh, I'll put two patches on instead of one because I want really high estrogen levels because it's going to make me feel so much better. It's not that. We're looking for a physiological level that's going to help with symptomology. Right. It's not about raising them to a certain level that's like luteal phase premenopausal. That's not what this is about. It's That's, about a physiological yeah. dose to work with your physiology to get you through this point. Because when you're five or six years post-menopause, your body levels out. Your heart rate variability comes up. Your whole body starts to work better. It's just this transition time where you're having all of these changes with receptors and gut microbiome and the way your body's perceiving things. And it has to learn what's going on as you're starting to dial down these hormones. So if we think from an evolutionary standpoint, there were no exogenous hormones when all women of other, uh, you know, other generations went through all of this. Granted, we didn't live as long either, but yeah. It, it is really interesting because the few people that I've talked to about this, one of my best friends, um, her uh, functional doctor or something in that area recommended testosterone for her to just cream. And yeah. when she told me she whispered and there was nobody around <laughs> and I thought it is, a, it's a strange thing. And it's an odd thing for, for women to talk about. I don't think they are. I mean, I think, you know, it's just, it's a, uh, it's, it's uncomfortable. It's hard for people to admit they feel like, you know, it's a little misunderstood too, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because women aren't supposed to talk about testosterone. That's supposedly a male hormone. And men don't even talk about it because if you say the word low testosterone in a room full of men, everyone averts their eyes because no right. one wants to talk. About it. Right. And, 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 and they're all yeah. on CRT. Yeah. Um, also the other thing at the ISSN conference, I learned a lot about, I don't know if you were there for this talk. I know you had some strange travel about, there's a very clear delineation between HRT or MRT, you know, menopause therapy and abuse. <laughs> it's, right. it's like, so this isn't, 
you know, when you're treated for menopausal symptoms, you can't expect to have these physical, you know, body composition changes as if you shifted into like testosterone abuse. This is like, they're very, very, very different. Yes, absolutely. Because the the levels for MHT are very low. They're less than an oral contraceptive pill. Right. Very small. Right. When you start looking at these, those are your high doses. Yeah. The uh, thoughts on DHEA? Yeah, I don't really have any thoughts on it, to be truthful. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you hear all these people, oh, take it to boost testosterone, but it's not really. You need a ability for conversion. And that taking yeah, for it- For me, uh, I wonder often if that's because, I mean, it did nothing. I, I often wonder if that's, <clears throat> when you're at this point, we, we're in a natural state where the body is, the hormones- the, these youth hormones are declining. <laughs> yep. You know what I mean? Like if we're resistance training, right? Eating protein, eating enough food, following these training po- protocols, doing some feed interval training, isn't that about where we're going to get? There's yep. no hidden testosterone that's going to come boosting out of us, DHEA. No, no, not at all. Great. Nope. It's just part of aging. I always, like, I always refer back to, to puberty. It's like, you look at all the changes that, that kids go through around puberty and that's the winding up of the hormones. And we're on the other end of the winding down of the hormones. Of course, there's going to be all these changes. It's just, it's, it's always like the big, huge change is observant in women, but not in men. That's why we're having these conversations because historically we've just looked at men and women haven't, had the same kind of spotlight in biomedical research because they just haven't been participants just the way the system's been designed so we don't have these conversations we don't have the research because that's just historically how it's been but now that we're having these conversations and trying to have the research there's still a lot of confusion out there yeah well i think you know i really appreciate it and hope to be more a part of the conversation it's i've i've learned so much and you know we'll continue to work with bill now which is super exciting dr campbell in uh you know we've got some projects specifically around looking deeper into testosterone which will be interesting and just this whole there's a lot that i i need to learn and you have kind of opened my floodgate brain awesome Yes. There are so many questions here too, specifically around uh, HRT or MRT. What would you say to this crew? Like, what are your thoughts, closing thoughts about what somebody should do if they have concerns or feel like they want to try something to help them through this phase? You want to find an endocrinologist who understands menopause and there are a few like sports endocrinologists around, but you really just need to find someone who is an endocrinologist. You can't go to your GP for this. You can't go to your OB for this. You need to find an endocrinologist because they're going to be the ones that can like figure out, are, are you estrogen dominant? Do you have symptomology of low testosterone? They're going to be able to figure that out for you. And then you can have a path forward. Unfortunately, the way that the medical system is set up the GPs don't have enough information. 
OBs aren't really that aware of it either. They have to take an extra course to become menopausal specialists, but endocrinologists understand the interactions. So that's, that's where I would push people. That's good advice. As opposed to anti-aging clinics, things like that, like those are things beware endocrinologist. And so what else would be your your closing thoughts for this group, maybe we'll have you back another time to talk about another or when your next book releases. But if you could kind of give us any takeaways, what would it be? Um, Understand your own body. So find your own patterns, talk to someone, could be your friends. It could be, uh, you know, an endocrinologist, but if you're really struggling and trying to figure out what's going on, talk to somebody. Look at like the Australian Menopause Society webpage, not the North American Menopause Society webpage, because the North American Menopause Society put out their new guidelines and they say exercise doesn't work for menopause symptoms. I'm like, "Mm, yeah, that's not true. So look outside of the US because there's more and better research going on outside of the US. And then the other is don't be afraid to try things. And also don't be afraid to age. Who wants to be 20 the rest of their life? Yep. I know it's going by fast. We did talk about 50 being a big number, but I think, you know, wrapping our brain around it and certainly conversations like this too, and maybe not such a hyper-focus on the number like we talked about before we right. start recording. Yeah. Just if you can do it, do it physically. It, it kind of doesn't matter how old you are, you know? Right, exactly. Yep. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. And I hope, hopefully I'll get to, well, I don't know if you're coming to Tampa in November. Uh, I have, yeah, I think I am. I'll let you know. <laughs> I've got to get through. I, I'm, your, your people can, yeah, that's probably too far in advance for you, but yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm going next Friday because I've had a very unique opportunity to be able to present to Congress about improving women in performance in military and special forces. So I got to get through that. Wow. Trips that are coming up. Wow. I'll let you know. Is there anything else we should know that's coming up? That's the big one. That's huge. Yeah. And then I I haven't really thought past that because I'm just now getting my head around how big it is. I <laughs> don't think about it. <laughs> I've got to get a power suit. Maybe I should wear a pink you, power suit. Yeah, your brain fog head around how, yeah. Well, yeah, you do need a power suit. But I feel like you should have, I feel like you should go in showing those shoulders and biceps. Like I feel like it should be a maybe a sweater vest. Oh maybe. yeah. Or just a vest with a pocket watch. Just a vest with a pocket watch. Blow them away. You know, just blow their minds. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, thanks again. It was awesome. I'm super excited and um, we'll see you again soon. Perfect. Bye-bye.